Well, just have your Bibles ready this morning. I don't have a particular passage we're going to turn to. I'm going to just uh, have a Tommy Gun approach this morning. We're going to look at a lot of different scriptures. And so you can try and look them up as I fly through them if you wish. But let's pray. Ask God's blessing and then we'll look at his word. Lord, it's been a good day in the Lord's house so far. We're so thankful. We felt your presence. We know you're here with us and we're thankful. And I pray now that you'd fill me with your spirit and use this part of the service as well. Lord, may we get a glimpse of the overarching truth that is your word. And I pray to be clear. So bless this time. If there are those here today who need this message in any particular way, I pray you'd apply it just as is needed. I pray, Father, if there are those specifically who have never trusted Christ, that they'd understand the gospel through this and that they'd come to Christ today. And if there are believers who have other needs, concerns, trials, discouragements, I pray this would build them up and strengthen them in their faith. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to say only what I ought, not anything I ought not. And uh, use me only for your glory today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask the question this morning, how would you describe Friendship Bible Church? I'm wondering what words would be included in your description. I'm wondering what you would say to a friend or family member who said to you, I'm thinking that I ought to really start considering spiritual things and I wonder about your church. Tell me about your church. I wonder if you could answer in a word. Could you come up with a single word that would describe Friendship Bible Church? Some, I'm sure, would probably say something like food, fellowship, fun, and all those things would be valid. Some, after a morning like this, when the music has been so wonderful, as it always is, some might say music as a description of the church. Some would hopefully say friendship. Some would hopefully say family. And I hope with all my heart that the word Bible would appear in there somewhere. Because we are Friendship Bible Church for a reason. It's not just a name. It's meant to be a description. We do believe in the Bible wholeheartedly here. We believe it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, perfect, holy, God-breathed revelation from God. And we do accept it as our only authority and our only rule, not only for what we believe, but how we live. Because of these things, we talk about the Bible a lot here. We spend a lot of time together working through various individual sections of the Bible. I I sat down as I was thinking through this message, and I, I thought back over the, of our years together, and I can remember, I might have forgot some, but I can remember teaching through Genesis, at least partially. I can remember teaching through Nehemiah and Psalms and Proverbs, at least partially. John was one of the earliest things we looked at, the book of Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy. We've systematically gone through all of those. We also systematically looked into the life of David, the parables of Jesus, and the dying and living words of our Savior on the cross. And after the tomb. And that's just the pulpit ministry. We also have Sunday school classes. If you've been in Carl's class, you've gone through Revelation and Galatians and Ephesians and perhaps some others as well. I don't know what else he's talked about in there. If you've been in Mark's class, I know that you've also gone through Genesis and Ephesians and some of the other epistles as well. And so we have dug into the Bible and we will continue to do so in this place for it's a key to what we, what we are and what we believe here at Friendship Bible Church. But one thing I'm not sure we have done, at least I don't think I have done it, is to stand back from the Bible and try to look at it as a whole. Uh, 
at least not in a single sermon. What is the Bible all about? What is the overarching theme of the Bible? After all, the Bible is a big book. It contains a lot of individual pieces. We've said it many times before. There's 39 individual books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, 66 individual books that make up this thing we call the Bible. It's a library, really, a library of law and history and poetry and wisdom and prophecy. But it's also an individual book, a single book. It has a unified purpose that runs through and across and throughout its many parts. And it's that view, that broad view, that 30,000-foot view, if you like, that I'd like for us to consider this morning. Someone has said that there are five main themes that run throughout Scripture. And so I'm thinking that if that's true, an understanding of those five main themes of the Bible may help us to get an overarching view, a good overall view of what the Bible is all about and give us that 30,000-foot view. So here's those five main themes. If you're taking notes, you can write these down, and we'll kind of go through this and see if it gives us that picture. The Bible speaks to us about the person of God and the promise to the obedient and the problem facing mankind and the provision of the Savior and the perpetual kingdom to come. Five main themes, the person of God, the promise to the obedient, the problem facing mankind, the provision of the Savior, and the perpetual kingdom to come. So let's look at all of those in order. First of all, the Bible describes the person of God. John MacArthur says that Scripture is God's self-disclosure. It is God presenting himself and describing himself to us. And that theme is repeated throughout the Bible. The Bible begins with a simple declaration of Him. I mentioned a couple weeks ago the Bible doesn't defend or explain His existence. It just simply states it as as something that we ought to just understand as an obvious fact. In the beginning, God. It's stated as if it ought to be intuitively obvious to even the most casual of observers. God is. And from that simple declaration that God is, the Bible moves on and describes him for us and paints a picture of what he's like, describes the person of God. It tells us his attributes, his characteristics, the things that describe him. Let me share just a few of those with you. This is not an exhaustive list at all, but these are things the Bible tells us. This is describing the person of God. It tells us, for example, in Psalm chapter 90 and verse number 2, that God is eternal. He is forever. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is eternal. It it tells us that he is unchanging. Uh, Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 6, I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. God is unchanging. There's a big theological word for that, of course. There's big theological words for most of these things, but this one would be immutable. He is immutable. The immutability of God, he never changes. We would like to think that culture changes God. God does not change. Immutable. We read that God is perfect and holy. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity, the prophet Habakkuk said. John chapter 1 and verse 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Our God is perfect. He is holy. He is called the Holy One some 30 times in the book of Isaiah alone. Holy. 
Genesis 1.1. We already read the first part of that verse. In the beginning, God goes on to say he created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. He is the creator. He is also the just and righteous judge. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. He is just, righteous, and the judge, and will judge. He is good. He is good. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows them that trust in him. I'm always reminded when I think about that attribute of God, of that little childhood prayer, that we all learn God is great. God is good, and we thank him for our food. I always try to make that rhyme. God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food. I couldn't quite get it to work. He's good. God is love. God is love. And I suppose if I were to go around the room and ask what one attribute do you think most describes God, most people would probably settle on that one. God is love. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, God who is rich in mercy for his great love where he loved us. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God is love. And so we could go on. There's, 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 there's more of God's attributes, the things that make him God. But I think you get the idea. You see, when we read the Bible, we come to understand who God is. God has spoken to us through his word, and he has revealed himself to us. The writer of the Hebrews said, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. He has spoken. He has described himself to us. And that's one of the overriding themes. The first of the five that we see in the Bible. The Bible describes the person of God. Number two. The Bible describes the promise to the obedient. The promise to the obedient. I suppose we could go in all kinds of directions with this. And I'm going to keep it very simple. I'm going to mention two things that make up this promise to the obedient. I think it can be summed up in these. Number one, his love is promised. His love is promised. God loves you. God loves me. I read part of this verse a minute ago. The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Of course, we know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates, commends, shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love is promised. That's part of his promise to the obedient. And the second part of it is his provision is promised. You know, God wants to give you everything. You know that? God's provision is promised. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace, the psalmist said. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. Psalm 115, verse 13. And we could develop that a lot. I'm just going to, I'm just going to lay that there and let you think about it. His love is promised. His provision is promised. And so the Bible describes the person of God, and it also describes the promise to the obedient. Number three, the Bible describes the problem facing mankind. And of course, now here's where things get a little complicated, don't they? Those first two themes are pretty wonderful. Those first two themes of Scripture are pretty exciting. The Bible describes the person of God, this one who is, who created, who is eternal and unchanging and perfect and holy and good and just and merciful and loving. And the Bible describes his promises to the obedient. He promises to love them with a perfect love and to provide for them out of his eternal provision. We, we love that part. That's all wonderful. The Bible also speaks of a problem. 
one that drives a wedge between us and God. You see, God has a law, and he wants that law to be obeyed. And man violated and violates that law. And as a result of that, suffers the wrath of God. Violation of God's law, disobedience towards God, brings God's wrath and displeasure. We talked about that at length when we studied the first few chapters of Romans. And this theme, this theme that there's a problem facing mankind, is repeated throughout the Bible. It it, it just goes from beginning to end. It started in paradise, in the very Garden of Eden. And, And by the way, that was a very real place, you know. It really was a Garden of Eden. We read in Genesis chapter 2, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat of it. For in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And we flip over one chapter to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and we see that when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat it and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And so there it started. There was the beginning. Described at the beginning, and then it's described all throughout the Old Testament. We see verse after verse after verse that talks to us of this theme. There is a problem facing mankind. David knew it. In Psalm chapter 51, he said, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He knew that problem existed. Ezekiel chapter 18 says, Behold, all souls are mine as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. And so the problem is seen everywhere in the Old Testament. And then it's further explained in the New Goes through the whole Bible. We quote Romans 3.23 all the time, don't we? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means me. And that means you. We quote Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it's all through. We don't need to, we don't need to beat on it. We know it's there. When we read the Bible, we learn over and over again there is this problem that faces mankind. I know some people don't believe it applies to them. I've met people who don't believe it applies to them. But the Bible does say all, and so it does. Some people are like the guy who was responding to a pastor's sermon one morning, and he said to the pastor, he said, you know, pastor, I'm just as good as the next guy. And the pastor said, that's absolutely right. And the next guy's a sinner, too. We're all sinners. If we say that we have no sin, John said, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We can't even live up to the first commandment, let alone the others. And so there's a problem facing mankind. That's the third theme. Number four, the Bible describes the provision of the Savior. The provision of the Savior. And I I think here we might be looking at the most wonderful of the five themes. They're all pretty amazing. But this one is glorious. The Bible tells us that there is a Savior. God has provided a Savior to fix the problem that faces mankind. A few weeks ago, Brother Josh Richards preached here. And he preached on the scarlet thread that runs from beginning to end of the Bible. This morning in FBC 101, I was looking around the room, and I noticed that at least three people in there still had those scarlet threads hanging out of their Bibles, and probably many of you do too. Well, this is that scarlet thread. This is what he spoke about, and this is the theme. The Bible describes the provision of a Savior. The Savior is, is, is God's Son, Jesus Christ, and that theme runs from beginning to end of the Bible. It would be impossible to consider a high-level view of the Bible. It would be impossible to get at 30,000 feet and try to look down on this book as a whole and not see this part of it because it runs through the whole thing. Sandy Patty sings about this thing. There is a Savior. What joys express. His eyes are mercy. His word is rest. 
For each tomorrow, for yesterday, there is a Savior who lights our way. Are there burdens in your heart? Is your past a memory that binds you? Is there some pain that you've carried far too long? Then strengthen your heart with his good news. There is a Savior, and he's forgiven you. There is a Savior who lights our way. See, that theme was in the Old Testament. It's in the New. It's all throughout the Bible. There is a Savior. The Old Testament, he was promised as the solution to the fall of man from Eden. Right after those horrible verses that we read in Genesis chapter 2. We come to Genesis 3.15 and we see, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God, speaking to Satan here, our great adversary, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and thou shalt bruise his heel. The first messianic promise in all of Scripture, Genesis 3.15, right there at the very beginning, God promised a Savior who's going to fix this. He was described as the coming king who would gather all to him. In Genesis chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall be the gathering of all the people. And so he was the coming king who would gather all to him. He was described in Genesis 22 as the sacrificial lamb of God. I love the story in Genesis 22, don't you, of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac about to be sacrificed. And then Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. He was described as the sacrificial lamb of God. We read of the scapegoat in the Old Testament, which is a picture of the, uh, the scapegoat that bore the, the sins of the children of Israel off into the wilderness. It's a picture of the coming Savior. We read of the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, which pictured and foreshadowed the true Day of Atonement when the Savior would bear our sins. Over and over, the psalmists and the prophets provided all kinds of details about that coming Savior. We knew where He would be born. Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2 said it would be in Bethlehem. We knew how He would be born. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 said it would be of a virgin. We even knew how He would live to a certain extent. Isaiah chapter 53, Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. We knew that He would be betrayed. By a friend. The psalmist said, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. We knew he would die an atoning death for you and for me. Isaiah chapter 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The prophets described even how he would respond when he was put on trial. Again, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. The Psalms told us that he would be forsaken by all, even by his father. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? We even know that he would be crucified. Zechariah chapter 12, or no, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 22 and verse number 26 uh, describes perfectly crucifixion. They pierced my hands and my feet. And in Zechariah chapter 12, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And here we see the Son of God hanging on the cross of Calvary, pierced through the hands and feet, pierced in the side. We even had that description in the Old Testament. We knew he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 
They knew that in the old. The parting of his garments at the foot of the cross was described. Even his resurrection was foretold. Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. His glorious and eternal kingdom was described. We could go on and on, over and over again in the Old Testament. We see the promised Savior. And so it's one of those five themes that runs throughout the Bible. And that means it is clearly seen throughout the Old Testament. But it is, of all of these perhaps, the one that we would say is the overarching theme and the very subject of the New Testament. Because it's in that second section that it reaches full bloom. The angel said, she shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Paul told Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And so this theme is repeated over and over. It is the scarlet thread that runs all throughout the Bible. There is a promised Savior who solves the problem facing mankind. And so I must ask, I wouldn't be a preacher if I didn't ask, do you know that Savior? Do you know him? Have you met him? Is he real in your life? Well, there's one more theme. The Bible describes the perpetual kingdom to come. John MacArthur again says, a great sweeping reality of the Old Testament is that history will end with God establishing an earthly kingdom in which his glorious Savior will rule and reign. I have a lot of favorite verses. It just depends on where I happen to be in the Bible. Usually I find one that I think is my favorite. Right now I like Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse number 14. It says, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you not wait for that day? What a glorious description that is of that perpetual kingdom. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a theme. It runs all throughout the Bible that there is coming a kingdom. The Savior will reign. God will rule. And that kingdom will be real and established. And so if that's true, if that is the theme, then the, the, the parallel question that we have to ask about all that is who then is going to be included in that kingdom? Everybody? or only some, who will be included. And that question also runs all throughout the Bible. It's all part of the same theme. King David asked it in one of his psalms, Psalm chapter 15 and verse number 1, Lord, who shall abide in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? And the answer comes thundering back from every page of Scripture. Only those who know that promised Savior. Only those who believe. Partially explained in the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Uh, But it was fully and completely explained in the New. This is really the theme of the New. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. By grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. Gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, there is a coming kingdom. It is a theme of the Bible, developed in both the Old and the New Testaments, and not everyone will be part of that kingdom. That's part of that theme. Only those who believe in the Savior will be part of that kingdom. So again, I have to ask, will you be in that kingdom? 
Do you believe? In 1876, a woman by the name of Mary Kidder pondered these questions. And she wrote these words that we've sung many, many times. Lord, I care not for riches, neither silver nor gold. I would make sure of heaven. I would enter the fold. In the book of thy kingdom, with its pages so fair, tell me, Jesus, my Savior. Is my name written there? Is my name written there on that page, white and fair, in the book of thy kingdom? Is my name written there? Lord, my sins, they are many like the sands of the sea, but thy blood, O my Savior, is sufficient for me, for thy promise is written in bright letters that glow. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them like snow. Is my name written there on that page, white and fair, in the book of thy kingdom? Is my name written there? We're going to sing our closing song in just a moment, and if you're uncertain how to answer that question, please step out. Please step out. Come to the front. While we sing, let us take the Bible and help you, help you work through those things. Let us help you be able to say now and forever what she was able to say in that triumphant final verse of that song. When she said, oh, that beautiful city with its mansions of light, with its glorified beings in pure garments of white, where no evil thing cometh to despoil what is fair, where the angels are watching, yes, my name's written there. Yes, my name's written there on that page, white and fair in the book of thy kingdom. Yes, 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 my name's written there. So what have we said this morning? Well, we have learned that there are five great themes that appear again and again in the Bible. It discusses the person of God, the problem facing mankind, the provision of the Savior, and the perpetual kingdom to come. There is a God. God is. And He does love you. And He does desire to give you everything. But you, like every other man, woman, boy, or girl who has ever lived, has a problem that blocks His promises from you. And that problem is your sin. And it drives a seemingly insurmountable wedge between you and God's love. But that love was too great to allow that to remain. And so God provided a solution, a Savior. And now all, all who will only believe in and accept that Savior can be part of his kingdom. A forever kingdom. A perpetual kingdom. See, that's the Bible in a nutshell. That's the 30,000 foot view. If we think about those five themes that run from cover to cover throughout the book, we got the whole thing. And so, my friend, where are you with respect to those things? Because you see, once you know them, you have to do something about it. You have to act upon them. I read one where at one time uh, an illustration, and I don't know if it's true or not. Those of you who have been to this place may know whether or not it's true. But I read that as you travel along I-10 in Louisiana... There's a large billboard which catches your eye, and it stands high above the city just as you start up the Mississippi River Bridge. On it is a picture of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross of Calvary with his head bowed, and the caption underneath says in bold letters, It's your move. It's your move. It's a powerful thought. God has already taken the initiative in salvation. Christ has died for you. He has provided the solution, and now it's your move. Well, let us pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word. And Lord, we love the Bible in this place, and we've talked about so many pieces of it, but I pray now as we've just tried for a few moments to think about it as an overall 
single book. I pray it's helpful. May we ponder these five themes. May we rejoice in the truth that is contained therein. But most of all, Lord, may we respond. Lord, I know that there are some in this building who have heard this and thought about this and considered it but have not yet publicly responded and said, Lord, I want everybody to know that I'm a believer. And, Father, I know people don't have to publicly respond. I know they could respond right where they are, and I would pray they would do that if they're not willing to step out, that right where they are they would simply bow their heads as we sing and say, Lord Jesus, I know these things are true. I accept that you are my Savior, and I want you to be my Savior, and I ask you to be my Savior. Lord, if they would just do that, they'd be part of the kingdom. But, Lord, we pray they if, if, if do that or step out either way. Let them not leave this place still lost. And I pray, Father, that uh, if, if this was somehow helpful to Christians today, I pray that, Lord, they'd respond in whatever way you're leading them to do. We'll sing. We'll open the altar. We'll have an invitation. Father, I pray you'll move. And I pray you'll help us to move ourselves and uh, respond to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.